Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Excited today to be joined by someone I follow avidly on Twitter. I would recommend folks who have a Twitter presence to check out what, what Lou is doing. Dr. Lewis Moore, professor of history at Grand Valley State University in Michigan on the show today. Lou, I want to welcome you to Trending in Education. Uh, thank you for having me. And uh, you're not just someone who's on Twitter. You've also done other things in your life, including writing a book, which I just read, which is called We Will Win the Day. But before we get to that, you know, welcome you to the show. And then as the rite of initiation, we ask our guests to tell us their origin story in their own words. So can you catch us up on how you got to this point in your professional life? Yeah, I, I thought you thought I was some kind of like Marvel character, but okay. All right. So for me, it starts a couple of places. One, I just love sports, right? So I do sports history. I do black sports history. So I've always loved that. But where I, I got into it in the fact that you can actually do this as a job was I was an undergrad at Sacramento State University back in the, oh my gosh, long time ago. And for our senior thesis class, we had to do California history class and we could choose any project. And I wound up settling on the Jack Johnson, Jim Jeffries fight of 1910, life for Now the fight happens in Reno. So obviously it's not California history, but before it happened in Reno, it was, in, it was scheduled for California. So the senior, you know, thesis paper was just looking at newspapers, various newspapers. And this is before everything went online. Mm -hmm. uh, so I actually had to go to the state archives or go to our newspaper room at Sac State and, and get stuff. And so that's how I started. And then the professor, Joe Pitty, was like, oh, you should try the MA program. So I got into our MA program, substitute taught on the side or yeah, substitute teacher a couple of days a week, just not getting up at four in the morning and, and checking <laughs> and see if someone needs a sub. It's not a fun thing to do when you're in your low twenties. Right. Yeah. So I did that. If you guys hear, if you hear my dog, I apologize to everybody in the background, but there's probably a squirrel outside. And he, he sounds, he or she sounds cute. So it's a, yeah, it's not cute right now, but anyway, so I did that and then got into a PhD program. And then the whole time I'm, so I'm trained at history, African-American history. So my advisor does African-American history, doesn't do sports and nobody around. I was at UC Davis does it, but I always did sport. And so I didn't do a traditional sport history program. What I did was use sport to look at black history. Mm -hmm. And so that's maybe where I'm a little bit different than other folks. Some people are, they study under somebody who does sports history, or they go into a kinesiology program in their sports history, there are sports studies yeah. or somebody comes to it as their second or third book. Okay. I've written my first book. Now I'm going to do some sports. Right. For me, it was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. There's no losing. And so yeah. in that instance, I'm pretty rare, uh, right? Where we're. we're I'm going to get a U.S. history job doing sports is very rare, but I got lucky and, and I'm now I'm at a place where I can do what I want. And so my first book was really just picking up on all that boxing stuff I did. And, and so I fight for a living is about black boxers from 1880 to 1915. So a lot of Jack Johnson in there, a lot about manhood and just mm -hmm. mobility. And then when I was finished that, I got an email about doing this book and I was like, cool, I don't have to go through the rigorous process of writing a proposal right. and then doing, you know, two years of research and then hoping two random people like it and then that make all these changes and proceed. Cause that's why I would, I fight for living is, oh, you have to make all these changes. I was like, man, this is my baby, but okay. 
But with this book, it was just like this company, the initial company, they just want to put out stuff. I'm like, all right, whatever. So it's academic, but I didn't have to be as academic. It's formal, but a little bit informal. And so I signed that contract in 2014 for We Will Win the Day and promised delivery two years later while I was still finishing up and shopping I Fight for a Living. And so they do come out the same week just because... I think if I had for living was done a year before, but just the way publishers work, I had submitted that done with it while I was writing We Will Win the Day, but they just come out. And so with We Will Win the Day, I just wanted to tell the story that I've been seeing. Like I'm really big on newspapers. I'm really big on the black press. And, and what I did was literally just read everything I could from 1945 to 1968 to mm-hmm. tell the story. But I'll shut up now. Maybe you have questions. So yeah, no, I mean, that's, and that's my origin story. So I good. just do what I use sports and the black athlete to tell stories about American history. Yeah. And you also are a podcaster. The podcast is called the the black athlete, which I've listened to. I guess there's two elements of the storytelling in we will win the day that struck me. One is the level of depth that you get into historical figures like Bill Russell or Jackie Robinson, like understanding them with a little more than a surface, like almost mythological understanding of these people, uh, which is interesting. Uh, there's one dimension that's interesting. The other one that I really liked was the fact that you were able to tell the stories of athletes and names that I maybe hadn't heard before and tying that to lessons learned from the current situation in sports, where if you're talking about you really hitting the ground running, starting in 2017 with these two books out and the Trump presidency. It's just starting all of the activation around sports that happens through his presidency. And then that led into the pandemic years. And Colin Kaepernick is someone who's sort of a contemporary of yours in terms of his narrative, which is something that I know you've been tracking as well. And then on top of all that, we have the Rudy role and what's going on in the the NFL today around that their head coaching problem and the Brian Flores suit just recently uh, came out there. So while you're studying sports, it's not really just the box score element that you're about. A lot of it is more of the narrative element, the storytelling, even the mythic element of sports and how that sort of helps us understand who we are and work through some of the problems that we have in our, our culture. So I would recommend our listeners to check out what Lou's got going on. In terms of a, a question, how is now treating you? What's top of mind for you right now? As a historian, I always like knowing what's top of mind in this moment and then how that connects to history. Frequently, historians are really good at telling stories from that lens. So like what out of what's going on right now is capturing your imagination? That's a good question, right? I'm all over the place right now, but you know, I think you mentioned it before. One of the things I try to do in, on, on Twitter or just with any of my public writing is really attach what's going on right now with back in the day. And so there's always, and even when I assign papers for my students, that's all we do is I try to get them to do public face writing and, and whether it's sports class or U.S. history class, like how can you use the work that we're learning with what's with the current event today? And I apply that to, to my own writing. So right now, right now, as of like February 8th, if you follow me on Twitter, been a lot of conversation about race and, and, and blackness and whiteness. And just that's the conversation with the Mike McDaniel uh, hire in Miami. And I just think, again, every if this is to me, if I use this as a window to look at American history, then this is an opportunity for me 
to publicly discuss how race and, and whiteness and blackness operates in America when we come to terms, when we talk, for lack of better terms, like mixing, right? Race mixing, right? And so if you follow me, I talked a lot about the other day about athletes who are passing as white and what happens when they get outed legally and socially. And so that's where I, that's where I've been thinking about now. There's another box I didn't mention. I'm like, do I, should I post that or should I just go on about my day? Cause, cause once you post something, there's a thread to it. It takes a little bit of time because you're linking articles and stuff. And the, the other thing is a lot of it's my work and it hasn't, it's not public and you're like, okay, I, you worry about who's taking what. So I'm always trying to deal with that threading of, okay, here's some work and then just enough where someone can't go and take it and run off on their own. So I'm really into race right now and people who are phenotypically look white, but maybe have like blood in them. And also, as you said, the Rooney rule, just trying to follow it. Now that the coaching hiring cycle is done, just try to figure out what's going on when it comes to the lawsuit and also what the NFL plans to do. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting, the context, because, because I got to admit, I did not have anywhere near the depth that I could have had about 1945 to 1968 sports through the lens of the civil rights movement and Jim Crow. I knew it more as a sports fan my whole life. I knew their, the record books and I knew who was in the hall of fame. And I'd probably seen a couple of biopics about some of these legends. I did watch the Muhammad Ali documentary, which was just out. So like, I, yeah, I try to do my best, but the level to which there were real decisions being made day to day by athletes like Jackie Robinson, Arthur Ashe was another one who was really interesting to understand his context and the way he was dealing with real moral dilemmas and real decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. Looking at the full span of time, maybe from 68 until now, is it cyclical? Do we go through waves? It does feel like right now, let's say the last five years has been a, a level of activation and activity in terms of civil rights, social justice, the consciousness of racism is probably at a, an entirely different place than it's ever been. It feels like this is the most it's been raised in our consciousness since the sixties, but you're the historian who, who studies this stuff. Any perspective on how now relates to back then? And then has there been any, been any other times like that since the sixties? Yeah. So I would say like the last 10 years ish starting, oh yeah, 10 years started with the murder of Trayvon Martin. And mm -hmm. that's when we see the Miami heat put on the hoodies yeah. and I think and there was no real backlash and that's because there are mega superstars like LeBron and D Wade. And I think it opened an avenue for other athletes to get involved because the biggest superstars were getting involved and that's just that they were going to do. On top of that, there was mega protests, right? Black Lives Matter has been around since 2012. And, and when you compare it to the sixties, a good story I like to use is someone like a Floyd Patterson, who, who was one time youngest heavyweight champion of the world. And in 1960, he's sitting there watching TV and sees, you know, kids his age, right, out there in the sit-ins movement. It's like, wow, I got to do something. And then he gets involved. He's not necessarily marching, but he joins the NAACP. He makes sure one of his fights integrated. And then he does some work with Jackie Robinson around, like, housing and stuff. So he's involved and he visits yeah. Birmingham in 1963. But it's what happens is then and now is that these athletes are always second, right? They're, they're, they're behind the people. And it gives them cover. And so that's why like if last year, last summer, 2020, you saw a lot of athletes out there. That's because everybody was out there. And so it's harder, it's harder to be first, right? When there's going to be a lot of like arrows pointed at you. But if you're just part of a movement, 
Mm -hmm. then it's a lot easier. And so there's a massive civil rights movement, right? There's the sit-ins, there's the freedom rides, and then there's just general movement to integrate stuff and protest. And so athletes are part of that, just like they are now, not necessarily leading it, but part of it. And they get called out to to lead it, just like we see now. What's going to be interesting in these next few years is 2020 was huge because you go from George Floyd to, even though it's, the NBA bubble. It doesn't right. seem like it was, right. it seems sometimes it seems like it was forever ago, but it was literally like a yeah. season or two seasons ago, just because the way the seasons work. You went from Floyd to NBA players on strike, and you're like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And then LeBron and them have uh, more than a vote. And now it seems to be like it's dying out. I think COVID had a lot to do with it. People just wanted to, these athletes want to just get back to it. The backlash has changed towards them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they want to deal with that anymore. So it seems like there's a phase out. And and if we go back in time, there was a phase out too. Once you get to the late 60s, early 70s, because things had changed, right? The movement had started to change. Black power was really on its decline by the, the mid 70s. And, and athletes were also concerned about other things. It was the 70s on the one hand, but also guys are finally starting to make money endorsements. And so their attention went other places. It's hard to keep this up, right? Right, right. And I think we're in that place. The major difference though, is that there's not, there's some women participating. It's not that they didn't want to participate in the 1960s. It's just that there's not a lot of women athletes, right? There's no Title IX. Right. Um, now, you'll have track star like Wilma Rudolph or Warren Matthias, but you're only talking about a handful. Right. Those like the, the men aren't really asking them to participate. Now you see women athletes, whether it's Simone Biles, whether it's the WNBA and Atlanta Dream, like helping campaign my Moore and prison reform. So they're front and center. They're not waiting for anybody. Yeah. But there's also a lot more because of Title IX. I'd say that's the major difference right yeah. there. Women athletes being involved. Yeah. And leading. And, and, and leading. Yeah. And then what about Kaepernick? And I know that could be, that's a, that could be a whole podcast in a number of different ways, but it does seem like he was out there also running it back. We did a show on Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Similarly was out there. If nobody hears you, if there's not a lot of attention, if you're just kind of marginalized you're disappeared. But in the case of Kaepernick, it seems different in some, some meaningful ways, but I'd love to hear your take on, on how we put him into context. Yeah, that was so long ago. I was thinking about it. It was almost six years ago. We yeah. think it was close, but it was 2016. So he's, he's been out of the league for, for a while, but I think he stands out different be- than others because it was like a sustained protest. You had to watch, you had to pay attention. It started a national anthem. It's football, the biggest game. Whereas a lot of time we saw these athletes, it was one-off stuff. It's like, okay, I'm going to wear this t-shirt. I'm going to pose for this picture. But Cap was every week, preseason, even when he wasn't playing, when he was playing. And then the plat- he had the platform and he spoke. He didn't shy away. And I think it, it, it galvanized a lot of football players. It changed the movement, showed them their power, and also showed them what their owners really thought about them. Mm-hmm. But then again, you know, the struggle with football players, there's a new wave, right? Yeah. All the time because you're not in that long. So the guys, a lot of the guys who are in now, they were maybe in college, maybe in high school, <laughs> depending on the age when Kaepernick was there. And so they're, they're just trying to make it, right? They're just yeah. trying to get their three, four years in. They went to college where they were probably told, just hush, do this. I'm away from you. They're not taking all these classes anyway right. about this kind of stuff, about social injustice. And so it seems like it's calmed down now. There's, I don't think that any... Anybody nailed this year, maybe two years ago, it was only down to three. Right. So everything has calmed down. And Cap's not really, 
he doesn't use his platform like he did. Like during the season, it was media, it was weekly interviews and stuff like that. And now it seems to be he's doing his, he's using his platform to do his projects, right? right and right. and do more around education. So he's got a book out. Mm -hmm. um, I think a new documentary is coming out. He has his TV show. Right. So I think that's where he's going multimedia platform versus I'm going to sit here and talk and say what I have to say. Mm -hmm. And then he still has his nose. No, his rights campaign. But again, one thing we learn is that if you're not in the media, if you're not front and center, nobody pays attention. Right. So right. it's possible that he could be still putting on the same events that he was in 2017. But because he's not out front and center, people aren't paying attention anymore. Yeah. Although he is in some ways the, the person. I at least think about when I think of Black Lives Matter and in right. some ways he was vindicated by the the sad truths of the you know, last few years and then the activation that came after George, right. George Floyd. I mean, even 2020, you have Floyd, you had Ahmaud Arbery, you had Breonna Taylor, and you had a masses of people out in the street, right? right and right. the NFL, you know, the players finally put out Black Lives Matter video. Yeah. Roger Goodell apologized. I think there was like a kind of apology to Kaepernick. So like, you're right, but you're still not getting back in this league. I, they stayed mad at him for a long time just because of the, the position he put them in. Uh, yeah. The position they think he put them in. I think he had far more supporters than, than the people saying they're never going to watch again. But I think the NFL blinked too soon. Yeah. And the whole shut up and play is something you talk about back in, you know, the 40s, 50s. It's been around forever and the, the right. right path for a black athlete to take, you know, for an athlete of conscience to take is something that was true then. It, it's still true now. And it, and it does seem like looking at today's news, you were mentioning Brian Flores, which is something I think we're all thinking about these days. It looks like that was an act of conscience to file this suit that likely puts his future career, he may become the head coaching equivalent of, of Colin Kaepernick, where by, by virtue of taking the stand, maybe he'll still be able to protect his career, have a job as coordinator, stick around in the NFL in some capacity. The owners in the NFL is really the space that a lot of people are, are looking at now and how likely are they going to take a chance on a Flores when the risk is not just what happens on the field, it's also might he wind up turning his attention on me, in which case then I'm suddenly vulnerable. Any perspective on the Flores suit? I believe you were cited in it. Is that right? I thought. I yeah. Some, one of my public facing articles, NFL protests, but yes, yeah, so the Flores well, almost a week ago, right? Just caught everybody off guard about really the discrimination he faces, but other black coaches face. And I think that was important, right? It's not, he was like, it's not just me. It's not just the New York Giants. It's every team, it's every coach forever, right? Every black coach forever, right? And, and, and I think it was really powerful and, and not necessarily a Kaepernick thing because Kaepernick was protesting stuff off the field and then they never let him back on. This is more Kurt Flood where you've been going after this kind of structural problem with the sport. Still, Flood got his time at, you know, what, the Washington Senators. But I think Flores, Flores is done, right? He had a yeah. few interviews already and that's, I don't know, whatever was going on there, but. I think he understood if he did, this was the end of the road for him. But the the indignity of what happened to him, 
I think it slapped him in the face so hard that he was like, this is it, right? Yeah. This is, it's not just me. And he understands it. And we all understand it, right? The last hire was, was the New Orleans Saints and they hired within, right? It's like, why put people through all this? And I think their criteria for hiring was one to know the Saints organization really well. So, well, why bring an outsider in? If you don't haven't created that type of, you know, pipeline and you're just doing these sham interviews. And I think he was right on that. How... The Houston Texans did David Coley. They fired him just to hire Lovey Smith, right? Yeah, like, right. You clearly didn't want to go their way of Lovey Smith because you could have hired Lovey Smith last year. And you brought him on as a defensive coordinator. Right. But I think Flores is, and Flores was up for that job too, but his lawsuit spooked him. You're right. Yeah. We can't hire some a white guy who's young and literally never coached. Can't do that. I think at the very least it spooked him there, but... What's going to be interesting to see if other coaches have his back, if right. it's just Brian Flores, you know, all by himself. And the sad part, if the listeners understand the Kurt Flood situation is no modern player had his back, right? There's guys like Jackie Robinson who spoke out for him. I think Hank Greenberg right. and a few others. And just if folks don't, don't know the history, no. Kurt Flood, baseball free agency really changed the, right. the game. It's He's an under, undertold story. Well, he's not in the hall, but yeah, yeah. So he's sued to end the reserve clause, which essentially says if a team signs you, you're their property for life. And right. he's like, that's not fair. I have no say in where I go. You can't just trade me. I, I can't negotiate. I can't. It's really hard to get a better contract. So that changes baseball. He actually loses that Supreme Court level. But nobody backed him. And he thinks that if people backed him, then yeah, he would have won. Right? Right, right. And it's the same thing here with Brian Forrest. You, you've got a little bit of Hugh Jackson stepping in saying Cleveland had me lose too, which is a separate part of the conversation, but you haven't really had all the black coaches, right? And there's only one at that time who had a job. So you didn't get the sense of Caldwell speaking out or mm -hmm. Leslie Frazier, Todd Boyd, because they all have to be the next one. And, and that's why what Brian Forrest did was so brave. It's because usually coaches don't do that in general. White are black because they're not rocking the boat because you're out. If you do that, if you Eric Mangini, eventually you're out, as he told our Belichick and stuff like that. Right. He got a couple jobs, but he's really on the outside. And if you're black, you're never going to get a shot again. You do not rock the boat. And, and so Flores rocked the boat and nobody followed. And I think it's sad, but we'll see where the lawsuit goes. Because I, my guess is his law firm understands that there's a lot of money behind it. So they're going to continue to fight this. Um, yeah. So they, get their money out. Yeah. And the timing, February 1st, uh, when the Super Bowl is on the 13th, beginning of Black History Month. Right. It really has changed the the public narrative. Our attention spans tend to be super short, which is why we need historians and, and people doing good work on on Twitter to to make us remember things. But but he really did I talk about the zeitgeist a lot on the show. He did steer the collective attention towards topics that Roger Goodell and the NFL owners were not expecting to be dealing with. Right. I mean, and he got five, at least five days out of it, which is really hard to do it in a era where you get 24 hours. So he did on the same day Tom Brady announced his retirement and right. people stopped talking about Tom Brady's retirement. So he, right, right. it was big enough to do that, it was on a lot of shows and it was smart. Not only does, you know, the beginning of Black History Month, but like you said, it was two weeks before the Super Bowl. So it was, it's essentially a dead week, right? This right, the, right. The week before. And now everyone's attention's gone to the Super Bowl. My guess he can still get some attention because it's going to, it's not like a big, it's not like Mahomes is in the Super Bowl. It's not right. a big matchup. It's like, right. yeah, it's the Bengals and Joe Burrow is a good story, but it's not 
right. a time-consuming story where I'm going to pay attention to everything that's right. out there. But we'll see, right? Because once the Super Bowl's over, now everyone's talking about their team and the draft. And because the NFL has done a really good job, a, a great job of controlling the timeline for 12 months of the year, even though it's only played from September to, and then once in February, right? Right. Right. Because they're going to own the offseason. They're going to own the drafts coming up and they're going right. to own these couple months. All the coaching hires have been done. So it's like, what happens now, right? right. Flores has lost that. We'll see if he's actually lost that momentum and, and where people's mind go. If someone's going to be able to keep them, you know, those toes to the fire and also remind everybody that, oh yeah, there's this major lawsuit happening. Right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And then how does it appeal to a broader audience outside of sports too, which is why Flores, the Flores case is interesting in that a lot of people I know who are casual or less as a sports fan are aware of this case and even its coverage in mainstream media outside of sports media is something to to continue to keep an eye on. What other contemporary stories are out there? I did talk about meme, image, and likeness on, on running it back recently as, as a big change in the world of sports and something to put into context. The Olympics are happening now. I know you talk a lot about the Olympics in, in We Will Win the Day and how like the 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 public sphere, you know, the famous Tommy Smith and 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 John Carlos's protest with their fists raised in the air, which was in part organized by the other guy in the stand, the, the, the Peter trail. Norman. You're right. Yeah. Well, he he wore a button. He didn't really organize, but he yeah. wore his button. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I gotta be clear. I don't watch the Winter Olympics. I don't <laughs> watch a lot of Winter Olympics. I last night there was some, you know, that I think she's the Chinese American that, that competes for China. I saw her compete, uh, uh -huh. some snowboard thing, but other than that, I don't, I don't really follow it's, it looks, it's cold outside out here in Michigan. Yeah. You're in Michigan. Cold there. Yeah. Right. Even yeah. though it's like fake snow right now in China, which is really weird. Like the backdrop is like a nuclear power. Oh my God. So, like I'm watching this. I'm like, and I don't want to tweet it out and, and sound dumb or, or sound like being insensitive, but is that a nuclear power plant? <laughs> like, is that, that it? but. And I saw it and then I've seen the before and after pictures. I was like, my goodness, like this place should not have had, this is not where you hold a winter Olympic, whatever. I, you know, you know, people pay for these type of things. But other than that, you're right. The NIL is just super interesting now because teams have, have taken over it at the big time college level with these football teams. They're like, we're just going to pay you. We're going to pay you not from our pocket, but we'll get money together. And that's how it's always going to be major booster stack again, paying, but then it's also What's super interesting about that, it seems like that's going to take away all the control from the players, right? right like right. now all of a sudden you're not a brand anymore. You're not an individual is now we got control over you, right? Because here's the pot of money that we control. And so right. you're going to fall along again. If you have your own, you know, the person who has the Gatorade deal, the Nike deal has some power because I'm still getting money off Gatorade and Nike, right? And they'll lean on you to put me in, right? You take that away, you're really messing with people's money and they got to fall in line. And so I think that's a way to control a lot of folks, whereas letting them, you know, be themselves, get their own money. Maybe they had to hustle a little bit more for that money. It's not the same as a paycheck, um, right, but right. still, I think it gives them a little bit more power. Yeah. yeah. And it did look like Steph, Steph Curry signed Ozzy Fudd to a deal. Right. Like, so like there is a little bit of, you know, the NBA might be the other space to, to get your take on, because I know you, you, you tweet regularly. I've never seen as such creative use of Doc Rivers gifts as. Oh, uh, that's all I did. That's my favorite. Doc. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> his, his stuff. Oh. Look, 
But uh, but the NBA is something where like your perspective there is really uh, something I rely on to to try to make sense of things. And the the what stories are jumping out to you there that you think are relevant on a on a historical or or narrative perspective as we look at the the, the rest of this season. Yeah, so with the NBA, I honestly, I barely, I watch, casually watch until playoff time. So just so I know, yeah. um, because it's just, the, the it kind of gets boring on a Tuesday night and it's the Love same me. teams yeah. and it's, you know, Giannis is fun, but I've seen him the last three years yeah. doing the same plays, passing together, like very, you know, boring, basic, you know, Middleton is good, but it's not like I got to yeah. watch Chris yeah. Middleton. They're not showtime. Yeah. Right. But I think what's interesting is just the trade deadline. What happens with Ben Simmons and the conversation of mental health. Like mm-hmm. the NBA had another opportunity to talk about mental health with Ben Simmons. And I, I think they just pushed aside. Right. right. Um, if, if your listeners don't know, Ben Simmons, the player who's, who's super talented, but he just won't shoot the ball for whatever reason is clearly there's something, you yeah. know, that that's going on with him. Um, and then he just stopped playing because he wanted to be traded. And now it's potentially might get traded to the Brooklyn Nets, who, who have a star, James Harden, who doesn't want to be there, who also has a star, Kyrie Irving, who can only play half the games because he won't get vaccinated. But, but I honestly think he's going to win. He's going to win that in the sense that eventually New York's going to lift their vaccination laws. Like, I think people are, I think right. you get the sense that the narrative of people being tired of things is starting to win out. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. Even though that's not safe, I just think there's going to be, you know, their new mayor yeah. just seems right to just do something well, like spring. That. Spring is coming and spring is coming, coming yeah. down. So, yeah, that's right. definitely the sentiment here as far as I know. Right. But of course, you know, I don't want to be the guy, but we could have fixed this two years ago if we just paid people to stay home for a couple months. And then right. you know, we, we couldn't do that. And so now I think we're just, my thing on this is there will never be a sense of normalcy, right? Mm-hmm. Just because something's going to come up in the pipeline, but they don't have to wear a mask at school, but they still, we send them um, to school in a mask. I know when they play that youth, youth basketball, they're the only ones, I have two fourth graders. They're really the only ones wearing masks now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is to me is okay. It's kind of, especially at the height, right? It's, it's packed in there. You got all these little kids, everybody from that school was missing students, right? For January, it was just like a revolving door of students out, but the parents were like, yeah, we don't care. So I'm like, all right. So, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks, then the mask can come off for the kids. So when everything calms down, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. 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 So much to process. It's a, a lot going on. And then we're an education podcast and you're, okay. you're a professor. What's your read on the world of, of higher ed? What's it been like teaching and what are you thinking about more as an academic moving forward? Oh gosh. Uh, so higher ed, I'm burnt out and I think we're all burnt out, right? Yeah. I think the, the transition from having to go immediately online to be online when, and I didn't mind the next year of being online. I kind of like it a little bit better. And then coming back face to face, it's been tough because you have a whole set of students who are offline or who are online for a year. And then you have some new students coming from high school who did COVID for two years and now they're here on campus. Yeah. And so everybody's got to relearn, right? Teaching in a mask is not an easy thing to do. You can't read faces. Students aren't really back, back yet. I have one class where last week there were six people out for COVID and there's only like 20 some students, you know, and it's like, you know, someone calls you like, there he is. He's going to be out next week. So that's tough. I, I just think we did a lot, of, you know, faculty did a lot of heavy lifting over the last year, you know, 
decades and making places run. And I think now upper level sees the colleges more as a business yeah. and it's just, there's, it's really hard to, like you get in this, not as a business. And then I think, look, I've been doing this since 2008, you realize it's a business, right? Yeah, and so yeah. as a professor, that changes how you see things, right? Your passion is like, man, this is, we're really just counting numbers here, right? Where, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a history teacher. So a lot of my classes are general ed classes. Mm -hmm. And I think the university sees us as like butts in the seats. The student sees us as I just got to check this box. So that's really hard to come in. It's like, yeah. ah, I want to teach you this, I want to teach you this. Motivate. Yeah. Realizing, yeah, it's hard to be motivated when you realize people are just checking boxes. It's really tough in that sense. But the other thing, I think, you know, being online for a year and a half opened my uh, eyes up to just new styles of teaching, trying different things with tech. And, and we do story maps or GSI mapping in some of my classes. Yeah. Allowing students to do podcasts, allowing students to do TikTok reports instead of papers. Mm -hmm. Because for me, it's all about, it's, it's all about the information, right? How do you, I'm trying to assess whether you understand the information. So whether it takes a thousand word or 2000 word essay, or maybe a two minute video, mm -hmm. there's still value in all these things. And so giving students this, this option to just show me what they know mm -hmm. is, is where I'm I'm moving towards changing up lectures. What I tend to emphasize is I'm trying to change things around constantly on the fly. So that's where I'm at. And like I said, COVID has opened my eye. And the other thing is just really as an educator, thinking about the difference between passive learning and active learning, right? Yeah. And, and so much before, you know, we come up old school where it's, it's a lot of passive learning. Professor professes, for lack of a better term, you write it down, you take a test and then it's like, okay, online, I used to, I, I cut up my lectures. So a typical lecture, I would cut it up to five to 10 minute chunks and a bunch of like five to 10 minute chunk lectures, which takes time. But then I would say, you know, and I still do this for my online classes. And I started to do this for another in-person class, drop a link, find an article that's related to this week's lecture, summarize that article. Right. Yeah. And so there are some active learning, right? This is what we did. Can you find a current event? Right. So we yeah. might've been talking, you know, a hundred years ago in colonialism in Africa, like if it's my black athlete class, but I want you to be able to, can you draw that connection? Like right now in real time. Right. I'd like that assignment because it's not hard, but at the same time, they got it right. At a certain point after class, they got to think, right? About, yeah, yeah. Okay, let me look this up. Let me draw this. Let me draw this connection. Now, sometimes they don't make the connection to stuff we talked about in class. Like, dude, what did we talk about this week? And other times they do, and it's fantastic. So I like that. Now it's time consuming for me to go through and just make sure everything's right. But again, it's an easy way to see how they're engaged with what we're talking about. And it's something that I learned how to do via being online. It's something now I'm trying to put back into all my face-to-face -face classes. It's just, yeah. and then the other day, I know I'm talking a lot, but this is a teacher. It's a, it's but, a podcast. Yeah. You know, I said like five minutes ago, I'm burnt out. The students are burnt out too. And I also think it's a new group of students who've grown up differently, right? They've grown up under a world of what are those apps where you, you study for the test? Cahoots yeah. and yeah. whatever, right? And so. Their expert, how they learn is a lot different. How they learn is, and this is no knock on them because it benefits my, you know, my, my now 14 year old, my eighth grader who they'll teach and say, Hey, there's a test on Friday. Here's the cahoot, right? It's just to say, here are the answers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. if you, if you have good study habits, then <laughs> you'll go and you'll move on. And that's how they process information. And so it's just really, it's hard because I've been used to, I'll give you a study guide for a week. You can study it. 
But then I've realized is they don't really pick up the information. And so I'm still young. I'm in my low forties, trying to figure out a way to test them without really, you know, giving them tests and just Mm -hmm. figure out not busy work, but work where I can still assess and change the learning where you're not just memorizing stuff. And then next week you've got, you're done with it. And also where you're not only worried about what's on the test. I just want you to take my class for 15 weeks and learn what I think is important. And then we can move, we can move on. Like if I didn't have to grade, I would never grade because as I tell people like giving an 18 year old a B on a history paper doesn't do anything for them in 22 years. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's the feedback, mm-hmm. right? Did you learn how to, do you know how to write this thesis? Do you know how to critically think? You know what I mean? Do you know how to research and get this evidence, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. and that's my job. I'll help you do that. Giving you a B or an A doesn't really do anything for you right. because right. you're 18 and you can't take that. You can't take that B or an A anywhere with you. Right. But what you can take is those skills you learned. And so that's why I really just want to emphasize these skills. I would do it if I could without any penalty to them. Like mm-hmm. here's a B, here's an A. Right. Um, because that's all they're focused on. Like, oh my God, he got me B, my life's over, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of where I went to college, we didn't have written grades. So we we did we'd have letter grades. We had written evaluations, you had right. credits, credit thesis to graduate. And it's it's a, it was an exception. New college, shout out to New College in Florida, but <laughs> but it's an exception rather than the rule. Although now the trend around ungrading and right. starting to question you know, coming out of the the pandemic and this awareness of trauma and being respectful of folks' boundaries and mental health and, and all those kinds of things are, are much more top of mind. Do you think there's any movement or upswell happening within education to affect some change, maybe coming out of the pandemic? No, because we had to go back, right? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. It was like, Mm-hmm. There was no options. You had, now I'm lucky I have one online class because online classes make money, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure you could put, put virtual butts in seats too. Yeah. yeah. And it's a general ed class. So it's going to feel no matter what. And yeah, yeah. to me, the most interesting thing about COVID was before that, everybody was pushed to get online certification. It was the wave. And then all of a sudden we went online and admin all over country was like, whoa, <laughs> like you were not doing that anymore. Yeah, yeah. But it was just like, People don't know how to do it, don't know how to make it work. And certification is just watching a four-hour class with some guy online and taking some random tests, which we're all PhDs, so we can pass these random tests, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. We have enough ability to, to remember what we learned 30 minutes ago. So we could like, here you go, here's your certificate. But I really, when I went online, I really tried to follow best practice and I got a lot of help. And it's like, this is what's going to work for me. And I think at first when students did it, they struggled just in general because you have some professors who they'll just do a straight shot lecture. I'm going to sit here and talk for an hour and a half. That's boring, right? Yeah, and yeah. it's true. Students don't want to sit through that. And then I think that's what hurt a lot of people. But again, like I said, the admin just want to, all over the country, we're just going back and yeah. you're going to have to teach on them, teach the mask. At the lower K-12 level, my kids struggled, my younger struggled with online just because I think the teacher was new to it. They had 40 students. It's like, here, do this homework. And, and I was fine with it because I was online. I was like, cool, just do this homework. And then we'll go outside. We'll shoot groups. We'll do yeah. PDE. And I, I didn't mind that because I could control. Once you do your work, I do my work. We have more time together, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and, and it wasn't just sometimes it's here's the electronics because I got I got yeah. what to do. But other times, like, okay, now we could, now we could do stuff, right? right we can right. go out, we could do PE every day. You know, at K-12, it's twice a week if you're lucky at some mm-hmm. of these schools. Mm-hmm. But when they went back, 
the, the beauty of it at the K-12 was the classes were smaller. And so my kids thrived because there's four people in the class, there's five people in the class because they split them up, they separated them. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a low number, but I think we had an opportunity in education to shrink class sizes, right? We had an opportunity in education to just to change the day. What do you do with all these things? And as soon as we had a chance to not do it, we went back to the old ways. Yeah, yeah. 30 in a classroom, homework. Like I'm anti-homework for kids, you know, at a certain age, because it's just, you'll see you have a youngster coming up. It's no point. Right. Cause I'm like, you had my kid for nine hours a day. And what online taught me, it's like, you could do when the kids were online, a lot of times the school was like, okay, we're going to teach for 30 minutes. We'll take a 30 minute break or like, here's the work. So you don't need that whole day, right? The whole day is like daycare and stuff like that. Right. Just, you know, figure things out. Use your eight, your nine hours that you have do what you need to do and let the kid come home and be a kid. That means, you know, basketball, soccer or whatever. Homework's stressful because like now if I don't turn this in, I don't get whatever it's called community time. I can't play or do that kind of stuff. But it just really stresses them out. Um, so sorry, that's my, that's, I no, it's my good. It's good. On, on at the education, at the college level and at the K-12 level. Definitely smaller classes. So. Yeah, yeah. Just so you know, like we do run a program here with his third appearance on trending in education. You qualify for a refrigerator magnet. So you clearly have more uh, to say. We'd love to have yeah. you back on the show. Hopefully our listeners uh, are enjoying this at Lou Moore, M-O-O-R-E 12 on Twitter. Also, if you look for Lou Moore, you'll find him there on Twitter. It's probably the the, the most direct point of access uh, to Lou. As we're wrapping up here, uh, we covered a lot in our conversation. Any concluding thoughts as we bring this home for folks who might be listening out there? No, I don't know when you drop this, but if you drop this before February 11th, vote for me. That Saber, one of my essays is nominated for essay of the year for analytics and history in baseball. So if you're on Saber, if you know how to get there, just go ahead and vote for me. I would just like to win something in my life. That's all. The books, I, I fight for a living and we will win the day. Lewis Moore, Lou Moore is how I know him on, on the Twitter. And The Black Athlete is the podcast. There's lots of ways. If you like what you're hearing, you can get more of Lou by following him. Thanks again for joining on this episode. All right. Thanks for having me. And for our listeners, if you like what you're hearing, write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.